The reason that our country is in the mess that it is in today is not because of the Republicans, it's not because of the Democrats. Let me tell you this, it's because of lame Christians. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a fascinating subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon we have many social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. You can check us out on our ever-growing uh, Facebook page, the fan page that's there. When you type in the search bar at Mighty Fortress 313, we do have a YouTube channel as well where we upload the podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, that notification bell to help the channel grow. And of course, if you like the video, go ahead and hit the like too. It sure helps us get the word out there. Of course, you can take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com. All the media is hosted there. Plus, we also have written media like articles with uh, devotionals as well as other types of subjects going on in the, in the Christian life or going on in the country itself. If you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, you can also do that on the website through the established PayPal link. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I want to talk about the origin of the sinful nature of man. But I want to ask deeper questions that maybe some listening have never thought about. Anyone who knows anything about the Bible knows that it says that sin is a characteristic of what man does. And if you think about it, it isn't too hard to really convince somebody... <laughs> looking around the world, that this is true. We see evil take place almost every single day of our lives in one degree or another. The question lies in how and why we sin like we do. And where does it come from? When we think about the implications to those questions, then another question arises like, where do infants go when they die? Young children even. In contrast, there are ancient heresies that arise from this subject that attack the very nature of Jesus Christ. Absolutely terrible. I want to begin with what sin is exactly and how it relates to the nature of man. We're going to look at how it transmits to different human beings at birth and why that even matters. We'll also take a look at the heresies in the early church 
and how they sometimes arise from time to time, even in our modern day. From here, we're going to attempt to answer the question that many are interested in of, like, where do babies go when they die? This will definitely be a deeper theological lesson and podcast. But I hope you'll gain a deeper understanding of your Bible and your God. With that introduction, let's get right into this. The doctrine of sin is important and affects many other areas and doctrines. Of course, how we view the nature of God also will affect how we view sin itself. If God is high, pure, holy, and wants mankind to be just like he is, then even the slightest deviation of man would be very, very serious. If man views God as imperfect or just a personification of himself, then who even cares about what is called sin or not? How a person views sin also affects how they view salvation itself. We have to understand the seriousness of sin and why it is that God judges it so harshly. Sin is everything that is opposite of what God is. Man has certain desires which are at its root legitimate, like consumption of food, sexual desire, survival of the body, survival of humanity, etc. God has guidelines and boundaries for everything that we do in this life. And outside of those, it's considered sin. Sexual relations between a man and a woman, absolutely fine within the confines of marriage. Eating food is absolutely fine as long as you're not in gluttony. So there are boundaries of what God tells us to do or not to do. And there's a rhyme and reason to it all. I've done other podcasts on this on that type of idea. Those who know the Bible know that the fall of man starts in Genesis 3. And I would highly recommend reading and knowing the progression before you start down this path and podcast. We must always remember that before we start asking the tough questions in Scripture, you got to know the Scripture itself. We know that Adam and Eve fell, and through that, the whole world spiraled into darkness. More specifically, it was Adam's sin that brought sin into this world. We'll look at quite a few passages in the book of Romans, but let's start in chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was in the figure of him that was to come. End quote. Now this is saying, that when Adam took the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3, death and sin passed upon all men after him. From Adam until Moses, being from before the law of God until the giving of the law of God, just in that span of time itself, there was a whole lot that took place that demonstrated man's descent into evil. I mean, God even had to flood the entire world because of it. The evil nature that stemmed from the sinful nature of man that came from Adam just kept getting worse and worse and worse. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve would not have known 
what it would be like to sin because they were innocent. It took an outside force named Satan to bring such a notion to their minds. Of course, we can't even begin to comprehend what it would be like to never sin or never even have it cross our minds. I, I can't even begin. I, I just cannot even wait for that day to come when the resurrection occurs and we get new minds and new and new bodies and just to be perfect and not have sin just constantly on our minds. I mean, that's surely one of the things that I definitely look forward to when Jesus returns. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the forbidden tree that Adam and Eve were not to eat. Genesis 3 tells us that God allowed Adam and Eve to eat all of the trees of the garden except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was more than likely distinctive from other trees, and it may have been in close proximity to the tree of life. While it was possible, I don't necessarily think or believe that the forbidden tree was a tree that was just shining or glamorous fruit with like some sort of magical powers. It was simply a tree that God said, you cannot eat. It's also important to note that Satan's temptation uh, with Eve, he said, Yea, hath God said you should not eat of every tree in the garden, end quote? This put doubt of what God said in their minds. He also said in verse 5 that Eve was missing out because if they ate the fruit, they would be as gods knowing good and evil. Now, this is very important. There was truth in what Satan said. Adam and Eve, indeed, had their eyes opened and did become like God, knowing good and evil. Didn't say they became exactly like God. The key thing there to understand, it says, in knowing good and evil. That was true. That happened. What Satan didn't tell them was the baggage that would come with that. Remember, Adam and Eve had never contemplated evil before at this point. From here, it wasn't long before the first murder took place, and then eventually other debauched sins. It was so bad that God had to flood the entire earth. The spiral continues downwards, and as the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, and verse 20 says, it says, quote, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. There's not a difference with our lives today, as sin is just as progressive and insatiable. The human sinful nature, or what the Bible calls the flesh in the New Testament, will go to great lengths to be satisfied. There are many people that try to blame God for the temptations, but it says in the book of James, chapter 1, starting verse 13, it says, quote, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But when lust conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. End quote. We have nobody to blame but ourselves for our sinful nature, and or acting upon our sinful nature, I mean. There is the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, and that's quite a bit of a different topic than what we're discussing today. I covered that in podcast number 41 called Your Powerful Ally. Be sure to check that out. 
Now, there are many who go the opposite direction and just blame Satan for their temptations. <laughs> now, it is possible that Satan or any of the other fallen ones can put temptation before us. That is theoretically possible. But that has nothing to do, even if that were true, that has nothing to do with your reaction and your human conscious control over your flesh. Also, man's sinful nature is so debauched by itself and so wicked that we do the work for Satan and he doesn't even have to do anything half the time. We gravitate towards sin. The world reflects this. People don't sin because of demons. They sin because of their nature. We naturally sin against God. Remember, as Proverbs 27.20 said, the eyes of man are never satisfied. This would bring us to the heart of the message. Because what you believe from here can either keep in line with biblical teaching or spiral you downward into complete damnable heresy. I cannot begin to emphasize this enough and it's going to require some deep thinking. We hit the practical understanding of sin. Now we're going to address a question that's still being battled almost 2,000 years later. There are so many who write online or social media that regurgitate the same heresies, I mean the same heresies that the early Christian church fathers fought against. The problem also becomes very difficult because of the loaded theological terms throughout history. I'm going to use certain concepts, but not in the full definition as some sects of Christianity may use them. Allow me to walk you through this as we have to know truth from error. Let me ask the question, and before you ask it, before you answer it, I mean, I want you to really think about it. The question is, why do we sin? We can say, well, it's because of Adam or the flesh. And while that's technically the answer, it doesn't go deep enough. Why do we have a natural propensity towards sin compared to being holy in God's eyes? We're all born this way, right? Or is there something else to explain it? In answering these questions, we have to see that after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, everything changed. Where they were once innocent and evil would have never crossed their minds, now we see the same progression of sin as described in James chapter 1 verse 13 through 16 as I had previously read. We also see that such passed to their children as well. And the scripture gives us a clue as to the reasons why. Notice in Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 it says, this is right after the fall of uh, Adam and Eve and given a little bit of time and some of the children they had. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them. And he called their name Adam in the day that they were created. Now, Adam in Hebrew literally means man. So don't get too hung up on, you know, Adam being a proper name for a male. It says it keeps going. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son. This is important. In his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. 
did you notice the change that took place? In the beginning, we were created in the image of God. But whose image is on man now? It says distinctly, in his own likeness, after his image, referencing Seth in the likeness of Adam. What was it that changed? It was the sin that took place and the curse from God upon man and the earth after the fall. Let me do my best to present a metaphor to explain this. Think of it as the, the image of God. Think of the image of God representing a standing mirror, beautiful in its craftsmanship and imagery. Then someone walks up to it and throws a rock at the glass. What happens? The grass breaks and shatters in the various pieces. The pieces that can stand no longer to reflect the image of the person standing in front of it anymore is all distorted. It's There may be an image there, but it's a distorted image. Man is the mirror, but Adam shattered the glass with his sin. We are told to represent and reflect Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In fact, this is what being a Christian literally means. That image before Christ is shattered and represents Adam's sinful image. After Christ, the pieces are put back on the mirror and the glass is sealed. Interesting choice of words. Sealed. Sealed like the Holy Spirit sealing us until the day of redemption. Think of the sealing as the Holy Spirit's job to link us back to having communication with the Father and guiding us to all truth. The mirror is not fixed completely, though. This is important. The mirror is not 100%. It's not. You still have the sinful nature. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can represent somewhat of an image of Christ compared to before. We still sin after we become born again. But through that, we can still represent an image of Christ. But what we really look forward to as Christians is the day of resurrection in which that mirror is now made completely brand new and is capable of fully 100% reflecting God's image again. Because remember, those who debate about this, about, well, we are made in God's image. Well, you're the mirror, but the glass is shattered. We represent Adam's image. Are you saying that God has a sinful nature? No, of course not. No rational Christian would actually say that. They tend to say these types of things without thinking through what they're saying. They don't think about the implications. That mirror is shattered, not hence the metaphor. It's still a mirror, okay? It's still a mirror, broken or not, but it's lost its main function. Theologians have written on this subject of the original sin of Adam and even the depravity of man before God. There are some ideologies linked to the, you know, these words, but what do they mean biblically? In his Lectures in Systematic Theology book, Dr. Henry Thiessen wrote this about the nature of man. He said, quote, that sin entered the world through Adam means that sin commenced its course in the race and man began to commit sin. That human nature became corrupt and that man became guilty. 
man was constituted a sinner. Actual transgression proceeds from man's sinful nature. End quote. This was the result of eating of the, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember, Satan told the truth to Eve about the results of the fruit and that the results and well, those results, what well, he didn't tell them and, and the baggage that came with it was those results would pass down to the children that came down uh, after them. And of course, the curse of God. And then he would never say those things. As I said earlier in the podcast, notice the progression of sin with Adam and Eve's children that came after them, even under Noah. Noah was not sinless, but he found grace in God's eyes. That's a big difference. We can see this idea taught in the anti-Nicene father, church fathers, or uh, literally uh, named before the Nicene councils. This is Christianity at its earliest. Now, the, the church father writings are broken up into three categories. I want you, uh, you've you can they're color coded and you can break them down into three colors if you like but they're really three major time periods uh, you have the red the green and then the blue the red versions are the earliest uh, of the church fathers that are closest to the apostles and jesus christ so those i believe are something we should pay attention to because they're not much farther removed from the teachings of the apostles themselves this would give us an idea of what primitive Christianity would have taught and looked like. Now, none of the early church fathers were perfect as they were trying to figure out everything biblically as we are today. But they were unified on the nature of man after Adam. One of the earliest writers named Arrhenius in his treatise Against Heresies, <laughs> which, by the way, a special note here that Christians intelligent ones especially were writing against heretics even after the apostles heretics were around that time of the, i mean the, the apostles hadn't even passed off the scenes yet and many of the epistles were written against the heresies that arose and there were men of god who took took up the arms right after them writing against uh, uh these heresies that would try to infiltrate the church Irenaeus is one of them now he wrote this in 180 a.d which is approximately 80 years after the Apostle John died. Irenaeus said this in reference to the human nature or sinful nature passed down from Adam. He said, quote, And not by the aforesaid things alone has the Lord manifested himself, but he has done this also by means of his passion, for doing away with the effects of that disobedience of man which had taken place in the beginning by the occasion of a tree, talking about the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, rectifying that disobedience which had occurred by reason of a tree, talking about the cross, through that obedience which was wrought out upon the tree of the cross. Now he would not have come to do away by means of that same image, the disobedience which had incurred towards our maker if he proclaimed another father. What is he saying right there? He's saying that Jesus Christ came for a reason, to pay for the sins of the world, but he didn't come in the image of Adam. That's an important thing that we're going to talk about later. Okay, There's a purpose and rhyme and reason why God did what he did. It was important 
that Jesus Christ did not take on the sinful human nature of Adam, obviously. Irenaeus continues on. It says, By which things clearly show forth God himself, whom indeed we had offended in the first Adam, when he did not perform his commandment, in the second Adam, however, we are reconciled, being made obedient unto death. For we, we, were, we were debtors to none other but to him whose commandment we had transgressed at the beginning. End quote. Notice that he said that we offended in the first Adam. We offended in the first Adam. So, Irenaeus is lining himself as well as all men alongside Adam in the first sin. This is what it means when we're talking about the sinful human nature, that we would are there in Adam's uh, shoes, so to say, or bare feet, right? We would commit the same sin. We identify with Adam. We have his nature. Now, Irenaeus does reference that it was the tree that played a part in condemning man, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden tree, but it was the tree that Jesus Christ hung upon that saved man. What a powerful statement. So powerful. Tertullian wrote in 208 AD on his Treatise of the Soul. This is much shorter, but still very powerful. 208 AD is 100 years removed from the Apostle John. Every soul, then by reason of his birth, has its nature in Adam, until is born again in Christ. Moreover, it is unclean all the while that it remains without this regeneration. And because unclean, it is actively sinful and suffices even the flesh by reason of their own conjunction with its own shame. End quote. Man's depraved nature and tendency just go straight towards sin. This does not mean that the sinner has no conscience. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 clearly teaches that the conscience still functions after the fall. This does not mean that the sinner has no innate consciousness of God. The Apostle Paul's words in Acts 17, 27 and other passages seem to indicate that there is God consciousness in the heart, the law of God even. This does not mean that the sinner has no good traits. It doesn't mean that the sinner indulges in every form of sin either. Again, we inherit from Adam the result of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is this so important to logically and biblically think out the origin of our sinful human nature? It's because of the heresies that arose, influenced by Satan, of course, and has persuaded many Christians in their line of thought. One example of this is the early heretic Pelagius. We can often hear those who are followers of John Calvin say that if a person believes in free will, then they're Pelagian or semi-Pelagian at the minimum. You can almost think that Pelagius might have been even a godly guy and that he believed the right things even. By the way, I did do a podcast on the free will of man and God in podcast number 43, so feel free to check that one out uh, later as well. The problem with Pelagius is not that he believed in free will, but the extent 
in which he took to, took it to the very gates of what we would call sinless perfection uh, today. That's heresy, the sinless perfection heresy. He believed that a person was not born with the sinful nature of Adam, that they could simply will themselves not to sin with or without Jesus Christ. That's important, by the way, with or without Jesus Christ. Even to a person who claimed to be a Christian, Pelagius believed that a person can just simply stop sinning entirely. Stop sinning in its entirety. There's an overemphasis on the nature of man having the power of himself to stop sinning. For example, Pelagius said in his letters, here's what he said, quote, it was because God wished to bestow on the rational creature the gift of doing good of his own free will and the capacity to exercise free choice by implanting in man the possibility of choosing either alternative. He could do either quite naturally and then bend his will to the other direction too. He could not claim to possess the good of his own volition unless he was the kind of creature that could have also possessed evil in our most excellent creature with oh well it says our most excellent creature wished us to be able to do either but actually to do only one that is good in which he also commanded giving us the capacity to do evil only that we might do his will by exercising our own that being so the very capacity to do evil is also good Good, I say, because it makes the good part better by making it voluntary and independent, not bound by necessity, but free to decide for itself. End quote. You have to listen to what he said there. The overemphasis that, well, you just naturally have the capability of doing good or evil, and you can choose either or, even in the state of say Adam that Adam had the capability of doing either or and he could choose either or I mean the Bible does not teach just simply choose to do good rather than evil as Adam literally had no concept of what it meant to disobey God until Satan introduced the idea the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was just that giving them the knowledge of both. After the fall of man, notice what God said about man. God said this, quote, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. End quote. What did God say? He essentially said what Satan had said to Eve about them Attaining the knowledge of good and evil. That was true. If they only knew good before, then the tree helped them understand evil or what it meant to disobey God. See, today, many people may believe that man has free will. And they also believe the curse of the nature of Adam still abides with man from his birth. This is pretty orthodox in its view unless a person is from the Calvinist theology. The earliest church fathers taught that man had free will, and it wasn't until later in Augustine's life, well after the establishment of the Catholic Church, that he taught determinism and he influenced the church. But again, 
you can check out the podcast that I did on this subject dealing with the free will of man. Pelagianism is not only a heresy because it taught sinless perfection, but it also attacked the deity and purpose of Jesus Christ. If we could just simply not sin, then please tell me why in the world would God go to such great pains in the scripture to send his son to be put on the cross for our sins? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Even with the Holy Spirit of God, mankind sins before God. Does that make him not saved? No. It is the sinful nature of Adam and the result of the tree of the Garden of Eden that we deal with what's called the flesh. That same flesh battles against the spirit and it's a battle that happens until the day that you die. God went to great lengths to make sure that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. This is very important to understand. To understand this, just ask the reverse question of why God didn't just use the natural means of conception between a man and a woman to bring about Jesus. This is because sin and the curse pass through Adam. Now you can't have woman without man, but man is that by which a sinful nature passes through. Hence, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. God did not have sexual relations with Mary as the many heretics like the Muslims believe. God is powerful and God, for a reason, simply created life in Mary's womb and life that did not have Adam's sinful DNA transferred. This is why it's so important. If you don't get this right, it attacks the very nature of Jesus Christ. Getting this wrong makes you more than just a heretic. It makes you what the Bible calls a damnable heretic. Don't be foolish and be an unlearned person. Pick up and learn the scriptures and even pick up and read from holy men that came before us to help us understand the grander picture. This is so very important to understand. What we believe chain leaks in the other areas of theology and what we believe about God. The general Christian who may have trouble understanding this deals with the lack of understanding at the depth of sin and how much we actually sin before a holy God. The subject of the sinful nature of man is so confusing to people and hard to understand because they can't come to grips with their own personal sin how much they actually sin before God from the physical sinful things that we do to the sins of the mind if something is unholy it is by definition classified as sin in order to understand the mind of God in this view of sin you have to understand that we sin a whole lot more than we think we do Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 took sin to a whole new level for man to think about and it wasn't necessarily that it was just a whole brand new level it's just that they missed the entire concept of why God instituted the law and, and its impact Jesus said that it the thought of sin in a man's heart was equal and makes him just as guilty before God if he committed it physically if you think about that for a moment 
and the fact that the thought of foolishness is sin. That's found in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 9. We sin a whole lot more than we think we do. Now, this is interesting because those who kick against that, you'd look at them and say, what if your mind was an open book to everybody? Would you still believe that you're more innocent, that God says that you are? If everybody could just read your mind and what takes place there? Oh, yes. We sin a whole lot more than we think we do. But despite that initial sin, God doesn't chastise us until the sin plays out the rest of the way. As James chapter 1 uh, verses 13 through 16 talks about, the prophet Jeremiah also states in Lamentations chapter 3 verses 20 through 22 through 23, it says, quote, It is of the Lord's, Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, end quote. This just proclaims the grace and mercy of God because he doesn't just sit over us with a hammer waiting to smash us every time we sin. But you have to understand, you sin a whole lot more than you think you do. But God doesn't smash us for every time that we do. That just screams about the mercy and love of God, the mercy and grace and love of God unbelievable this brings us to the question that is on many people's minds when we bring this subject of sin and the sinful nature of adam i spent a long time with building the foundation so we can at least understand the depth of this question the question is where do infants and young children go when they die i said earlier that we sin more than we think we do and yet the grace of god abounds nonetheless we do have an age of accountability concept introduced real early in scriptures with Israel in the promised land. But we also see in Jesus' reference affecting uh, a little child in Matthew 18 verse 6. This gives us another glimpse of the grace of God. Because let's look at those situations briefly. The book of Numbers chapter 32 verses 10 through 11 gives a story of the spies of Israel coming back and everybody grumbling about not being able to conquer the giants in the promised land. God judges Israel and says those who are 19 years old and younger are going to see the promised land and those 20 years and up are going to die in the wilderness. Now think about that for a moment. Is a 19-year-old person a sinner? Yes. That wasn't the point though, as the mercy of God stepped in and laid an accountability concept. Then of course, in Jesus' story with the children, he placed a great emphasis upon those who would harm children, whether physically or spiritually. When a child is born, are they a sinner? No, because it's impossible for them to sin before they're conscious of the law of God. Are children born with the cursed nature of Adam? Yes. Remember, we're talking about the results of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Man's flesh is indeed cursed, hence why we die. A child does not fully become conscious until they're between the ages of around four to five. While that's not exact, it does fit pretty well with our observation of human development. 
a two-year-old child that wants another child's toy comes up to them, smacks them in the face, takes the toy, and leaves the other child crying, committed the textbook definition of covetousness, a.k.a. sin. But wait, to understand this, answer this question first. Do animals sin? Animals are thieves, murderers, and whoremongers. But do they sin? In the sense, by definition, they do. But it's more than that. Because they're not conscious of their nature. And they're bound to their nature. Young children have little better understanding than an intelligent animal. Some can say, well, children can talk at two to three years old. Well, so do chimpanzees and parrots. So, so what? The question lies with, are they conscious enough to reason out what they're doing? That's important. Now, I'm not saying that a human being at a, at a young state is comparable uh, in value as, a, well, as, as with an animal. No. But the consciousness level is the same until the age of accountability is reached. I believe that Paul assists us in answering this question in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. Let's take a look at that. It says, quote, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Now this is important next. In verse 9 it says, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold, under sin, end quote. Notice that Paul talks about being alive once without the law. And when the commandment came, sin revived and he died. Now some commentators of this passage believe that this is talking about his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. The problem with this is that Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law very well. But he had a problem with the Messiah. His problem was not with the law. It was with the redemption part of it. He knew the law very, very well. He's talking about when he was a child and how he was alive but without knowledge of the law. There comes a point in a child's life where the bridge into self-consciousness takes place and the understanding of the law of God enters their heart. Does that mean that they didn't commit acts of sin defined by God before? No. But the child before was just bound by his nature, similar to the animal. 
if a child is not even conscious of the law of God, would God judge that child if he or she dies and then send them to hell because they didn't accept Christ? I mean, theoretically, that's possible. But it goes against the grand picture of redemption and the mercy that God shows on us just being a few years older. Once a child reaches the age of accountability and acknowledgement of the law written in their hearts, then they can now be judged when they die. If a child dies before the age of accountability, I believe it can be demonstrated that they will stand with the righteous in heaven because they are safe, but not saved. To be saved means that they're saved from sin, but they're safe in God's mercy and grace that abounds. To give further clarification of the relationship between children and sin, there are some interesting articles that are written observing children by doctors just doing terrible things at the ages of two to four. Playing with a knife, for instance. A child stabs someone and then thinks it's funny at your reaction and they, you know, they, they keep doing it. Was the child performing evil and sin being conscious of what they're doing? I don't believe so, nor is there evidence for such. Of course, in other countries, child soldiering takes place and young children between the ages of 6 to 10 will hold a rifle, knowing full well in what they're doing, and they'll pull the trigger. In fact, there are terrible, terrible stories of children doing much worse than that, being taught by evil men to do them. Now, we do see this very well uh, prevalent in Africa. Are these children guilty? Yes. They're above the age of accountability because they know what they're doing. They can be taught to do those things. They have an understanding where a child before that has no comprehension of such. This also gives us the extreme example of what Jesus is talking about with a person or a man uh, and the millstone that defiles a child. Now, you can say, well, that's about pedophiles. Well, that's true, but it expands more than that. Those men who taught those young children to do such brutality will be held accountable before God for that, as well as the child standing for their own sins. Now, a child left in his natural state after the age of accountability will gravitate towards sin just like any man and they need to be taught right from wrong. On the flip side, young children after the age of accountability, between the ages of about four or five, can get saved and, in childlike faith, trust Christ. Some doubt this because of the mishandling of children in the Christian realm today, but there are plenty of stories that have boys and girls trusting Christ at ages five and even four, and they live on and can tell you the day they trusted Christ too. I've met many older men and women uh, in their golden years who would tell me such stories and they remember what happened. I do personally believe that a person who says that they're born again will not forget that day because something supernatural happens to them with the Holy Spirit. This is why that four or five year old can remember that day, but not others during that time. The day of salvation is not like any other day for a child, a teen, or even a grown adult. We have spent quite a bit of time on this subject, and I hope that you'll walk away with a greater understanding. There's still so much more that you can talk about and study, and I hope I laid a good foundation for you. 
and more specifically, that you think about God's redemption plan for mankind and his mercy and grace that abounds. Sinners will be judged, but let's not forget his mercy upon us and be thankful that he doesn't chastise us at every turn. Teach other believers so they don't fall into ancient heretical traps that have been battled for almost 2,000 years. I want to thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.